0: Welcome to biomechanics on our minds. Welcome to boom. We have biomechanics on our minds. Boom.
1: Boom. 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 Boom.
0: Boom. 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 I'm Hannah O'Day, and I'm
1: Melissa Boswell, and we're here to talk about some fun biomechanics.
0: Yes, we are. So this. Uh, we're grad students at Stanford University, but this podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics, and this episode is brought to you by Advancing Women in Biomechanics. Woohoo! Because you should go to the Advancing Women in Biomechanics event at ISB ASB twenty nineteen in Calgary.
2: It's gonna um, be lit.
0: Yes. Yeah, so the event is on August third at seven thirty p.m., and it's for everyone interested in helping advance women in biomechanics. So men and women, we want everyone there to come and join the conversation, share experiences, and learn more about the challenges that are faced by women in our field and discuss some proactive solutions. So that's the Advancing Women in Biomechanics event. And you can also follow Advancing Women in Biomechanics on Twitter um, at AWBiomechanics.
1: I'm gonna do that right now AW bio Oh wow it even it even comes up when you just put in AW so it's easy
0: <laughs> There you have it It's an easy easy to do.
1: Even a caveman could do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right so today we will start off with a bit of boom and then we have an interview with Tor Bezier from Auckland Bioengineering Institute in New Zealand and we talked to him about wearables and their applications. Yeah, it's super fun, and Tor's a really fun guy to talk to.
1: But first, a bit
0: of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit, of boom. bit, of boom. bit of boom.
2: Bit of boom.
1: So, today's bit of boom is brought to you by the blog Biomechanics in the Wild, which is hosted by Maria Holland. And she is at the University of Notre Dame and used to be here at Stanford. You can check out her blog. The link is in the description of this
0: episode. Mm -hmm. Or search biomechanics in the wild.
1: Okay, it's the second one when you Google search biomechanics in the wild.
0: Because biomechanics is everywhere. So we're going to be talking about one of her blog posts. Which fact are you going to be sharing with us, Hannah?
1: Today, well, this one just struck me. The title is, Can We 3D Print Our Own Skin? Mm,
0: I am shook. shook. Tell me more.
1: So, yeah, this sounds kind of crazy and even seem like something out of a science fiction movie. But researchers at Graz University of Technology, the Wake Forest School of Medicine, and the Universidad Carlos III de Madrid have been working on creating an artificial skin that can te- sense temperature, humidity, and pressure, and the cool thing about it is that currently artificial skins usually are only able to measure one sense at best. But these researchers are using nanoscale sensors, and developing them so that they can do all three senses at once. Essentially, it's a combination of a smart polymer core and a piezoelectric shell. Through this combination, you can take advantage of the different capabilities of the two different materials that are being used. The smart polymer core can detect humidity and temperature by expanding, and the piezoelectric shell actually can detect pressure through an electrical signal that's Very created cool. when pressure is applied. We have prosthetics for vision, for hearing, mm-hmm. but I, it's crazy to imagine a, sort of this prosthetic for
0: a sense yeah. of touch.
1: What's even more amazing, I think, is that they've made a handheld 3D printer that produces human skin.
0: That's so nuts.
1: Yeah. Just let that... like. I'm getting like flashbacks to Silence of the Lambs. I don't know if anyone has ever seen that movie, but <laughs> Hannibal Lecter is crazy and essentially has a different way of getting human skin, but... Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry to scare anyone out there. So it's able to 3D print like this combination of different materials?
1: It can essentially create different types of skin cells and... You can apply these layers of synthetic skin of or printed skin directly to wounds, so they could replace skin grafts. You know, when someone loses skin in a burn or something like that, or um, or some kind of trauma, they're able to actually just print the skin. Specifically, they can cater it to which layers of tissue have been disrupted by scanning the wound. So,
0: very cool. Yeah, that's that's really crazy. I wonder how far they are from having something that's actually usable.
1: Well, I think that they're, it sounds like they're close as far as research and technology, but they haven't mm-hmm. yet been able to test it on people. Yeah. Um, but apparently they're being used in industries such as with L'Oreal to limit testing on humans and animals. They can test lotions and products on this skin. fake skin or on this printed skin. So that's pretty cool. And apparently they're being used in robots. And this blog post on Biomechanics in the Wild as a really nice YouTube video about a robot with this 3D printed skin.
0: All right, thanks. That's super interesting. And now for our interview with Tor. today is Tor Bezier who is an associate professor at the Auckland Bioengineering Institute in New Zealand and also has a joint appointment with the Department of Engineering Science. Tor you completed your PhD in musculoskeletal biomechanics at the University of Western Australia and then you came to Stanford for your postdoc and actually set up the Stanford Human Performance Lab where uh, we work now so thank you for that. Thank you for the bean-shaped
1: desks.
2: You're welcome. Yeah, they're pretty trendy, aren't they?
1: They are really trendy.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, maybe they were when I put them in, but that was 10 years ago, so maybe maybe not quite as trendy now. No,
0: yeah. (laughs) Thanks for coming on and speaking with us today. So your research combines medical imaging with computational modeling and looks at mechanisms of musculoskeletal injury and disease. And in your bio, it talks about some open source modeling tools to generate musculoskeletal models rapidly and then diagnose and treat injury and disease. So could you maybe elaborate on this a little bit more, some of the open source modeling tools you use and some of the other tools that you use to measure musculoskeletal parameters or things that you look at?
2: Sure. Yeah. Well, was, you know, when I, um, when I first came to, to Stanford, I had an interest in creating musculoskeletal models from medical imaging. And so previously I was, uh, I, I'd been exposed to using SIM. Back then there was no such thing as OpenSIM, but uh, I'd, I'd been exposed to musculoskeletal modeling and, and had looked at ways of estimating muscle force from EMG, which is what I did in my PhD with David Lloyd. In Western Australia but we really wanted to get into more detail and understand you know what's happening at the joint level and to do that we really then needed to look at creating models from medical images and this is kind of I think where the field of biomechanics is headed in general and it's and it's trying to really capture some inherent physics and physiology of biological systems and to do that well I think the, the more we get into this and, and create complex models, we realize that our models really need to best capture the, the anatomy, and particularly when we're interested in joints and joint mechanics. So when I arrived at Stanford, you know, I spent a lot of time segmenting MRIs and um, look, looking at medical images and then said, well, you know, a lot of time and effort is spent by, by a lot of us all around the world in making these medical or making these models from medical images. And surely there's got to be a better way of doing this. So when I came back to New Zealand uh, about eight years ago, I came to the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. Um, and they've been well known for, for many years in developing methods to scale and, and fit meshes to cardiac, most, mostly cardiac models. So they've done a lot of work on modelling the heart. And some work also had previously been done modelling the musculoskeletal tissues. So I just basically said, look, why don't we try and make these tools more available to other people because I saw an opportunity to make these tools to help people segment and create kind of accurate musculoskeletal models. And so that's when I started this project.
0: Focusing more in the, the transfer of medical images to the models, like that, that pipeline. Yeah, correct,
2: and kind of the fitting of models. And, and for the open SIM community who typically take some – some information from motion capture markers and use that to kind of linearly scale some bones. Um, This is taking it one step further and saying, well, what if you had some segmented data of those bones as well as the the points in space, and you could do a better job of maybe getting customized bones and joints. So, so that's when we created this project and it was called the Musculoskeletal Atlas project. And I thought it was, you had a clever little acronym map of course. And, um, um don't laugh it took me a long time to think of that (laughs) that's
1: like us trying to create boom
2: yeah no boom didn't quite fit with the acronym but maybe we could come up with something that would be mat boom (laughs) so we um we said about then creating a set of tools which are all in python and hence kind of open source so we wanted to make these tools available to everyone where we would then um you know rapidly create musculoskeletal models and That was some time ago. Now we've done some of that work was funded by the FDA, US FDA, and you'd think why on earth are the US FDA funding these guys in New Zealand to make some kind of modeling tools? But they they are critically interested in using computational models for regulatory science, and so we have an opportunity then to create um, an open source. Um, suite of tools to to generate populations of models and test medical devices in a kind of general sense on these on these models and some of the um, some of the databases then we use we use kind of an anatomical and functional data but one of the key um, parts to this is an anatomical atlas that we get from post-mortem CT actually from Victoria in Melbourne Australia and so they have database around 60,000 full body cts and we have uh, just a subset of that about a thousand but from those thousand cts we can then generate models and the the idea is that you have hundreds of models per per decade of life and we can start interrogating these models for really interesting kind of form function relationships but in the background we we can now generate rapidly generate musculoskeletal models of of lots of different individuals that um much more subject specific, but also um, anatomically detailed than what we could before. And, and this year, we hope to then complete that um, data set in a way that we can then create tools for the open sim community to rapidly generate models. And that's kind of um, a, a very long-winded way of saying that we're, we've created an atlas for, for people and it's open source.
0: Okay. So could you give a description of what would overview of like what the flow would be like. So you talked about testing surgical instruments on the models or like what would be an example of something that would be useful?
2: Well, a a pretty good, a pretty good, good example might be in orthopedics. So if you're wanting to design a new implant, for example, and this is maybe a femoral component, uh, you would like to know then what the, um, what the variation is across the population of um, the the shape and size of the femur. So from our um, from our population models, we can see the outer size, but also the inner cortical thickness of the femur, because that's all um, inherently built into the models. So you could then test out that implant and say, well, this is how it might fit across the population, and you can start then narrowing down different demographics and say, well, this might fit really well with this demographic. Maybe this fits well with men, but not with women. And you can do these types of analyses all, of course, in silico instead of um, doing the traditional approach, which is you know, putting these limited number of, of implants into some cadaver specimens and saying, look, this is how they work. And so that's kind of a, a nice example. Um, we also have some ongoing work which I'm a part of, which is an NIH-funded project with Amit Urdemir, who's at the Cleveland Clinic, and that's also with colleagues at Cleveland State uh, and Denver University and the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. And there's five group, groups of us who are trying to develop uh, computational models of the knee, and in particular, we're interested in the reproducibility of the results. So it's kind of like the grand new challenge that we did with B.J. Fregley and Daryl Delima several years ago, where you kind of have some ground truth that you try and test your models on. And in this case, we're interested in joint mechanics. So we have some data from Denver and Cleveland where they have some cadavers and robots and uh, and our models try and predict then the type of behavior that, that you can measure then in those experiments. And by doing that, we can give potentially we can give to the FDA some idea about what kind of reproducibility you might expect with these computational models, which then could be used, back to my back to the example, which could be used by an orthopedic implant company to, say, virtually test their design and say, how well does it fit in the population?
0: That's awesome.
1: Wow, that's amazing. And yeah, I like that um, you really highlighted that. You're such a Uh, such an expert in modeling but still needing to be able to validate and do things experimentally with that ground truth data is it makes the modeling valid
2: i think it it's kind of an interesting point right there's a lot of people who who do musculoskeletal modeling or computational modeling and they're kind of at arm's length from the experimental data collection and until you actually do experimental data collection yourself you don't quite appreciate what goes into it um, whether that's with with um, you know even cadaveric tissue or whether you're dealing with with human subjects, but I mean there's a lot to it that goes into collecting those data. But of course, you know, a model is only as good as, as what it can predict. And so those experimental measurements are, are critical for us if we want to bring our musculoskeletal models, you know, into a clinical setting. We we need to be able to say, um, you look these models under these conditions, these models can reproduce the results that you might measure experimentally.
1: I guess on that note, um, I see you're also doing a lot of work now with inertial measurement units or IMUs and wearables. And that tends to be a field that's, it's it's not new, but it's probably seems to be less validated than um, say traditional motion capture or, or ways that we've been measuring joint kinematics in the past um, in a laboratory setting. And now we're going out into, you know, the outside world where things are a lot more variable and we don't necessarily have that really um, awesome gold standard data and ground truth.
2: Yeah. It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting problem really because at at one stage we want to rush out into the real world and and start measuring people in the real world life. And, you know, a colleague of ours at, at Harvard, Irene Davis says, you know, this is biomechanics in the wild and, the, the challenge, of course, is then having enough fidelity to measure what you really want to measure in, in those conditions. And where it's interesting is where you, know, you see some wearable technologies that have been developed, and it looks like cool and interesting technology, but whether or not it actually gives you the information you really want with the fidelity that you need is is questionable and, and there's been some really nice work done on this in the past. Uh, Ken Kaufman for one at the Mayo Clinic's done some really nice work comparing different commercial sensors and under different conditions. You know, it turns out some work under certain conditions really well and others don't. And and there is no one sensor really that works well in all conditions and it's really um, and, and that's kind of to be expected for people who do computational modeling. Again our models are tested under certain situations and, and circumstances and we validate them, for want of a better word, under those conditions. So sometimes if we perturb them or test them under conditions they're not designed for, they give undesirable results. So that's why I think it's an interesting area because um, we need to be careful about what we measure and, and how we interpret that, that information
0: Right. As it seems like with motion capture and um, other methods in the past, we've been focusing a lot on joint kinematics and like joint angles and, and what effect those have on the musculoskeletal system. But now with IMUs, you're mostly capturing um, like accelerations and then the angular velocities and, and it's more difficult to get to the joint angles. Um, So it's a, I guess my question is if um, you think that just maybe using like raw data, how we can then figure out what this new type of data means for the musculoskeletal system. Like, is there another way to go about this than try to calculate the same measurements we've been using before?
2: You know, in some sense, it's quite nice that you can measure the accelerations, and, and you know, if, in our computational modeling methods. Sometimes those accelerations are exactly what we want, and traditionally we double differentiate our displacement data from motion capture to get to those accelerations. So, in some sense, of measuring those linear accelerations directly with IMUs is, is quite beneficial. It gives you some insight. Um, of course, the challenge comes if you want to integrate that information then to to displacements, and that's where things start to kind of fly apart literally. Um, and so. Uh, you know there's a couple of approaches uh, some people do uh, brute force kind of machine learning style approaches with, with these sensors they're just collecting volumes of data and then letting letting the model or, or some ground truth um, provide a, a black box interpretation of what's going on and that's been shown to work well again under certain circumstances and, and constrained conditions you can train a model and it, and it can reproduce data quite quite well, quite quite accurately, and, and in some cases in real time. Uh, a different approach is to have more of a mechanical or deterministic type model, which is saying, well, if we have these sensors placed on these body parts and we have a physics-based model as a constraint, then hopefully we can match these two things together. And there's only so many ways once you add the constraints of the body, there's only so many ways in which you can be moving to give rise to these linear accelerations and angular velocities that, that you measure. And that's kind of an, an approach that we're investigating. Um, uh, along with BJ Frigley, who's at Rice University, we have a new NSF grant to look at, can, can we actually do this in real time and, and provide new tools for the clinic in terms of gait retraining and, and monitoring people's gait?
1: That's awesome. So could you tell us, I was going to ask you actually, if there was a project or something you've been able to accomplish with these IMUs that you wouldn't have been able to do before with mocap or, you know, the traditional set of tools that we've, we've had in the past. Is there some component of that, that that's possible only because you're using wearable sensors versus the traditional gate lab?
2: Yeah, I think that, I think this gets to the, the point really of where, Traditionally, we've we've measured people in very constrained environments and said, "Look, this is representative. These five steps that I've measured, which are the good, you know, force plates uh, strikes that you get in the gait lab, are representative of what you do, you know, as in terms of walking when you get outside." And, and we know that's just not the case. And so this is then an opportunity to say, "Well, um, firstly, can can we measure gait in um, in different environments?" We're, enough fidelity that we can get a a reasonable estimation of what say the joint kinematics are but then more interestingly monitor that over time and so another project that we've got i mentioned irene davis so we've got a project now that's funded by ge and the nba and we're interested in tracking uh, basketballers uh, throughout their training and, and their season and so These kind of data you would never dream of being able to measure previously without wearable sensors. But now we can instrument these basketballers and we can estimate impact loads um, with every step they take. So that's an amazing opportunity, but it also creates challenges because you have, as you can appreciate, a heap of data and you say, well, how do we interpret those data? That's where I think the real interesting part of this is not just necessarily in say machine learning approaches and AI, which is you know bandied around. It's a term that gets used a lot. But I think if you have a valuable computational model uh, which can help interpret those data, and also have some fundamental understanding of the biophysics, and that's really where I guess the mechanobiology comes in, where you understand. The, the loads and how these loads influence the biology, then you can get some interesting interpretation of those data that, um, you know, we, we could never do this these types of studies before. I mean, Irene did a study um, a couple of years ago, and she tracked, I think, over 100 runners uh, during the Boston Marathon, and she could, captured, you know, every step that they took throughout an entire marathon, um, which is just not, you know, possible without wearable sensors.
0: How do the NBA athletes feel about, wearing these sensors? Do you know their um, engagement with being monitored?
2: Yeah, so it's actually an interesting point because um, we're having to go through the NBA Players Association right now to become certified to as a, as a sensor that we can actually use. We have to certify the sensors with the NBA because currently the wearable sensors um, are pretty new and the NBA are very hesitant perhaps as they should be of of monitoring things like we we call it load for want of a better term but you know we're trying to get these biomechanical measurements on these players and the reason why they're they're hesitant about it is that could be used against them you could imagine a high profile player who potentially could be at risk of injury maybe um, who has these data collected on them uh, could be used against them really to say well you know there's plenty of players who who get paid lots of money to sit on the bench because of injury. So the NBA are a little cautious, perhaps as they should be, with the use of wearable sensors. Now, having said that, um, so we, we've collected lots of data on the um, on the New Zealand Breakers side, which I'm sure is well known to um, US listeners, uh, but that's a New Zealand basketball team that competes in the Australian League, and we've got two years of, of game and practice data w- with the Breakers, and so I think once we educate the players and say, look, what we're trying to do is, is characterise the, um, the, the training that you receive and the, and the types of impact loads that you receive during game and, and use that really to help uh, in your training and, and help try to prevent injury, then I think the players get some buy-in on that. But, you know, initially I, I think they're wary of, of the senses and what, what you're measuring what you're trying to do.
0: I saw a presentation that you gave on IMUs in the military context that was pretty interesting, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that, if you're working on that study, and maybe talk about that a little bit more.
2: Yeah, there's a couple of applications here. Um, One of the obvious ones, really, that comes to mind is, is the high rate of musculoskeletal injury in early recruits. And this you know, on the outset, it probably makes sense, right? You look at this and you say, okay, you, you have a whole bunch of uh, young recruits who come into this program and you put them through boot camp and they've got to achieve a certain amount of physical activity. And you're taking people from a certain level of um, of load and load history in terms of their musculoskeletal system and you're putting them through their paces and, and trying to um, get them uh, up to a – to a certain level of fitness, that obviously involves lots of stresses to the both the physiological system, but also the um, the the bio, if you're thinking about the biomechanics, you know the loads and and conditioning of the musculoskeletal system. And so there, there's really a mismatch then between the load and load history that you have going into training uh, and what you're exposed to. And it's no wonder that you know 20% of these recruits get some sort of musculoskeletal injury, whether that's kind of a, a repetitive stress injury or bone stress injury, which are pretty common, or, you know, muscle tendon tendon problems. And so for us, we can say, well, if we can manage that load better by understanding w- what your load exposure is, then we could potentially bring you up to these levels without necessarily um, pushing you, over the limit and, and having too much load, and, which causes injury. Um, the, the other application here is understanding context um, of of uh, of these individuals in in real world settings. And so often people would like to know what what actually happens um, out in the real world. And unless you're kind of tracking people with monitoring systems, sometimes GPS is works okay for monitoring. Where, where people are but it doesn't necessarily give you the tente- context of what they're doing at that time and IMUs can can provide some information to kind of fill in the gaps. So there's a couple of examples there of where we've done a little bit of work um, in the military context. But um, for me the, the the really interesting thing is to really understand the, the loads and boundary conditions really that are ex- exposed to the musculoskeletal system and, and that... The potential for injury then if you don't manage those loads
1: and has the military been i mean you talk about the nba being wary of uh having the, that data available or at least um you know being used for research how is the military with with sharing things like that or
2: i think yeah i think they're quite different i think they're at least we've worked um we've got some projects and um with different groups but I think they're pretty open to the idea that you can measure and monitor and and by doing so you can gather information and data that otherwise you you would be blind to you just wouldn't know if you have enough or too much load and and the traditional training method really has um, has shown to have a high incidence of injury so from that standpoint I think any information they get is um, is useful information so I I think they've far more likely to, to take it on board. But it does bring in another interesting point, which I haven't mentioned yet, and that's that's the concept of, of embedded sensors that you don't even know are there. And so this could be incredibly useful for things like first responders as well as, you know, military but even sporting applications. And we're seeing, of course, the miniaturisation of these sensors that it's, you know, could be quite possible, of course, to embed the sensors into shoes and you use inductive power to... Um, to you know, charge up those devices, and you know, the, you don't even know they're there. So it's it becomes less of a problem in terms of compliance.
1: Wow, um, the future is bright. I think for for us biomechanists.
2: <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot a lot of work to do. I I agree. It's um it's never been a, a better time. I think to choose uh, bioengineering or biomechanics. Uh, I think as um as a as a form of study. And I tell this to all of my undergraduates who I teach here and in bioengineering that um, they've picked a good time to step into the field. I think it's really exciting.
0: What are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics, even like within this area or any area of biomechanics?
2: Well, I think in general, um, what the rest of the world is kind of understanding now, and this is true for biology, it's true for medicine, is the understanding the importance of um, of the mechanical environment and you know, we're exposed, our tissues are exposed to mechanical forces and those mechanical forces regulate the, the maintenance of, of tissue and they're also important, obviously, for understanding injury and disease processes. So more and more the rest of the world is understanding the need to understand these mechanical loads. And so our role, I think, in, in the future here is really to understand this at a personalised level. What what are and and medicine is moving away from these cohort evidence based kind of studies which treats everyone essentially as kind of a homogenous group and say well, let's do an intervention on this group and see how they do uh, they're getting away from that as they should to treating an individual and saying look let's treat everybody as a, as a person and I think that's you know that's a space that we need to be in and, and we're obviously pushing that. In the medical field, but as I said, in understanding general biology, interesting biological questions. Um, more and more, we understand the need to personalize and and the mechanical loads that, that regulate a lot of these processes are critically important. So, you know, we're we're sitting in an interesting space, and and I think there's lots of different fields that that will rely on our expertise to be able to, to pull all this together.
1: I think that's a, that's a huge point of moving towards like personalized and individualized medicine, treatment, therapy, whatever regime, even just like on understanding, um, an understanding level of, um, but I feel like it's also, it's kind of an oxymoron. It's like, we talk about needing lots of all this, you need like, you know, a high number of subjects and things to validate what you're doing and validate any methods you develop or. Um, the tools you're using. But then at the same time, you want some sort of specificity and um, you know, ability to have like high resolution data that you can, you know, pick out these individual differences and make more personalized decisions. So um, I feel like it's always balancing those two things kind of, kind of what, like what you said.
2: We've definitely felt that, you know, in the past 20 years that I've been doing this type of research that You know, we we get to this point where our models become a bit more personalised, a bit more complex, and it feels like you know, where are we going to stop? At which which level can we just back off and say, well, we've got enough information now that we can make some clinical judgment? And it probably depends on what you're trying to intuit or interpret from your from your model. But you're right that it seems a bit odd that you know we're investigating all this or and spending all this time and effort to do this at a personalized level um, and ideally you'd like to then back off a little bit and say well what can we generalize about these results to to make some interpretation or make some sense of of the underlying biology and what's going on and I, I think you know we we have to deal with those issues and it depends on the research question of course that you're asking but I think more and more, and we found this from the Grandi challenge, at least. You know, you, you need a certain amount of complexity to do a good job at predicting individual, you know, joint forces. At least for, from that example, um, you know, the the average generic model that's kind of scaled to an individual just doesn't seem to do a good enough job. And so, you know, depending on what you're trying to do, you really need some uh, more level of um, input from from the individual.
0: That is really awesome. Thank you for talking to us about that. We have one more question to ask you, and that's if you have a fun fail, research fail, that you would be willing to share with us.
2: Well, I probably have more, more than the average person in terms of uh, fun. fun <laughs> um, you know, I i, I think there's, uh, there's been so many times where you expect to see something and, and of course it doesn't work out and whether or not that's um, a good or a bad thing I think you just have to accept that it, it is what it is and um, sometimes you just have to go with it and report it and oftentimes I think people are, are, are so um, sure when their hypotheses and ideas about what it is um, that they want to show that they're willing to gather all kinds of data and information they have to really support their hypothesis. But I think at some point you have to, um, be, uh, be good. I think diligent enough to sit back and look at it and say, well, you know what, I've tried, I've tried this, the data doesn't seem to support what I'm saying and, um, and back away from it and come up with, with something else. It may not be, um, exactly the the type of answer you expect from, from that question, but I, I think it's an interesting uh, insight into and, and when you look particularly back at uh, a lot of different paths of people uh, in their careers and what they take and they, they set off on a journey to try and solve a problem, but um, we found this definitely in our, in our patellofemoral research at Stanford. We, you know, Our initial ideas and concepts um, just didn't seem to add up with the data that we were collecting and, and we had to kind of reassess what was going on and so, I'm not saying that was a failure on anyone's part, but we definitely learnt, and and we're humble enough to be able to reassess the situation and and perhaps say, well, maybe our intuition wasn't right at this at this stage, and let's uh, let's go out again and w- with some different questions.
0: I think that's a great point. It's um, I think sometimes you can get so attached to your work and the same questions that you've been asking, but be able to take a step back and really remember your motivation and like big picture for the work. And like at the end of the day, we want to be able to help people and, Mm -hmm. and um, be able to, to advance in this field of medicine. And so I think um, that's a really good point to make sure that your work is still asking the right questions.
2: Yeah. And be brave enough to critique your own work, right? That's probably part of science.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, there's one more question that I want to ask that's probably the most important. Um, if Hannah and I come to New Zealand, will you teach us to um, surf? <gasps> yes, please.
2: <laughs> of course. Everybody's invited. I...
0: Everyone's invited.
2: <laughs> you know, it's a direct flight from California. It's easy. It's only 12 hours.
1: <laughs> we could do All a right. surfing IMU study. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Well, uh, and it's still nice and warm here at the moment, so uh, you guys better come down before it gets, uh, before winter arrives. But uh, you're welcome. Anytime.
0: See you in 12 hours. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> See you soon.
0: Well, thank you, Tor. Yeah, thank you. It was great to meet you.
2: Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, uh, on the podcast. I've really enjoyed the, the work. Keep it up. Do I get to say boom now?
0: <gasps> yeah, yeah, you get to say boom. Do you, need, do
2: you want a countdown?
0: Yeah, I think we better. <laughs> okay. One, two, three. Boom.
1: Boom! Melissa, this is my favorite part of the episode. And I hear that you have a fail to share.
0: I do. I totally have a fail. Yes, it So recently, I was trying to synchronize cameras with motion capture, cam- like synchronize 2D cameras and motion capture cameras in the lab. And so I bought these really fancy pants cameras to sync with it. And uh, they didn't come with lenses, right? And I've never, I'm not a. Uh, photographer so i didn't know that you could even buy cameras like without lenses like i didn't understand that concept (laughs) all my cameras have come with lenses (laughs) i mean i know like the really big ones but these are just like tiny cameras so i had to find lenses for it and so i found lenses that fit the camera and so i bought them and then um i was trying to get the cameras to work so i plugged them in and everything was really blurry and i just would not figure out what would be the right setting to focus on something and it was super frustrating and i went to go take the lens off and when my hand was like two millimeters from (laughs) the lens everything went into focus and i realized i bought a camera whose like focal range was like eight millimeter or about the lens's focal range was like eight millimeters yeah which is not ideal for recording someone walking
1: (laughs) i mean maybe if it's like ant man walking
0: Perhaps. Yeah. So I had to get new lenses and I finally got them. And it's actually just kind of been a mess because the videos were like three gigabytes for recording for like three seconds, which is just a hot mess. But anyway, that's a fail for another day.
1: Wow. Thanks, Melissa, for sharing.
0: Yeah. And that's no a great problem. PSA
1: to everyone who needs their lenses, you know, might need to know that. Their
0: cameras won't have lenses. Yeah. And things to think about when you're buying lenses for your camera.
1: Oh, I have... It's sort of... It's a, it's a fail, but it's, like, weird. But basically, I um, I have a Mac, and I upgraded to Mojave, like, the new operating system. And I'm always, like, hesitant to upgrade okay. to things, because I'm like, uh, like... Yeah, you never know what's going to happen gonna on the other side Uh-oh. of that upgrade. Right? <laughs> you never know, and you can't go back, which is the scary part. So, But, you know, I was sick of the window popping up, like, 5,000 times a day saying, mm-hmm. like, upgrade. Mm-hmm. So I was just, like, fine. And I gave into it. And I, like, closed everything out. I was like, okay, I backed it up, blah, blah, blah. And I upgrade, and then I go to open Illustrator to, like, help to, like, edit a figure. And it's just, like, it won't work. And I was like, what? And then... So it turns out we use like Illustrator on like a license. It's like a department license, so I have to like
0: mm-hmm.
1: do some crazy things to so, like VPN in. I don't know. There's things that words I don't understand, but things yeah. happen.
0: Yeah, things happen. Things and then happen. You're using.
1: and apparently it wasn't Illustrator that wasn't opening. It was the software I needed to like access Illustrator I see. That wasn't opening on this new operating system. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. And then like I like try to do all these different things to trick it to let me like open the software, but it won't. And so I asked one of our lab mates and I was like, and he's like, let me just Google it. And I was like, no, I Googled it. Like, of course I've already Googled it and like tried the things that they say to do. Yeah. And he finds this random post by this person that's just like, download the software again, but like you have to download it like three times and open it the third time. (laughs) So you open the third downloaded, like, you know, it's like you download it once don't open it, download it twice. Don't open it, it won't work. Then download it the third time. And if you click on the third downloaded one,
0: that cannot be real.
1: It opens. That's amazing. <laughs> so, for all of you out there that might need to just use something now forever, if something says it's not going to open, mm-hmm. I'm going to try it three times. Is it
0: third time to charm? Third time's That's what the they charm. say. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Boom. Uh, thank you to Tor for a great interview. And um, you can follow the International Society of Biomechanics on Facebook and on Twitter. God, I literally do this on every Twitter. time. I can't say it. <laughs> and, and on Twitter at ISBiomechanics. Biomechanics, Biomechanics off our mind. minds. Okay. Um. Actually, should we introduce you, like, Professor Tor Bezier?
2: Yeah, I'm actually not even a professor. No, okay. I'm, I'm just um. I'm just trying.
0: You <laughs> <laughs> a trying professor?
2: A trying professor? Yeah. No, I'm still. So I'm, I'm. I'm an associate professor. Is my uh, my official title.